3.36 p.m. it is, right in slap bang in the middle of the week. Mm. Well, we've got fantastic South African weather here, a little bit chilly, but yes, the sun is out and uh, we feel as though the chill is starting to get into your bones. South Africa gives you the opportunity to go outside and get warm in the middle of winter. Isn't that nice? That's a fantastic country for you. Yeah, lovely weather, pity about the people. Ah, well, yes, South Africa, we've got everything going for us except ourselves. Mm, yes, you know, South Africans, you know, we tend, to, we tend to see the worst in ourselves and the best in others. Which uh, isn't a bad way to look at yourself in some ways, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, we've got, uh, we've got um, an unwillingness to see the good, you know. We, we, we're always willing to believe the worst of ourselves. Um, maybe it keeps us humble. Maybe Allah Ta'ala loves that about us. Hmm? You know, but then again, I sometimes do worry that, you know, we aim so low that we keep on shooting ourselves in the foot. Hmm. We've got to raise our aim. We've got to raise our aim here in South Africa. You know, we've got to start matching the weather, I think. You know, imagine the sun wakes up every morning, comes and shines down us in such a lovely way. And we are all so mean and bad-tempered and um, feeling sorry for ourselves and unthankful and ungrateful to Allah Ta'ala. Mm. Yeah, no, we need to be more thankful to Allah Ta'ala. I was watching a, um, you know, one of the uh, Springbok, 
hy haal hy arme plekke, klein dorpies in die midde van die woestijn, is amper een woestijn, jammer, I must stop speaking Afrikaans, I beg your pardon, yes, yeah, yeah, the farmers have it hard in the Northern Cape, apparently we had fantastic rains all around South Africa, except for the Northern Cape, I wonder if someone's pointed out to them that they are living in the middle of a desert, well, in actual fact, you know, I've, I've, I saw somewhere recently that in actual fact the Kalahari isn't a real desert. Well, you know, you could, you could, you could have fooled me. I spent two years in the army in Uppington, running around in the sands with a apartheid rifle in my hand. In actual fact, it wasn't a apartheid rifle, you know. It was an Israeli-made galil. Yes, when I was um, pulled into the army to go fight for apartheid. The first rifle that they put into my hands was the Galil from Apartheid Israel. Very appropriate, don't you think? Yeah, we even, uh, a year later, well, we didn't know at the time that they were Galils. We were just told that they were special R4s, had a wooden hand protector with a carry handle. The two main um, uh, differences that set the Galil and the R4 uh, apart. Uh, Yeah, so there I was, fighting for Apartheid with an Israeli weapon in my hands. Very appropriate, don't you think? Huh? Yeah, Nazi Israel hmm. has lots of friends in the Conservative Party in Britain. Many friends in the establishment in Britain, because of course, you know, Britain was um, instrumental in the formation of Nazi Israel. And now it turns out that in actual fact, Nazi Israel seems to have a lot of friends in the Labour Party too. A uh, major stink uh, growing in England today with the uh, Sir Keir something other of uh, the, the, the current leader of the Labour Party has apologised unreservedly and has agreed to pay 500 million pounds or something like that to the uh, to uh, to former staff members of the Labour Party who sued it uh, for not taking steps um, to apologise for anti-Semitism to, to tackle anti-Semitism within the party. Uh, they were being sued. The Labour Party was being sued by these, well, the BBC are calling them whistleblowers. Calling them whistleblowers. It seems to me, really, what's going on over there is um, there's a major move by Nazis disguised as Jewish people to try and turn the Labour Party around and to stop criticizing Nazi Israel for being Nazi. And so, uh, yeah, the major moves afoot. Uh, Labour during Jeremy Corbyn was very was very outspoken criticizing Nazi Israel for being Nazi, and the Conservative Party, as usual, was um, trying to do its best to defend Nazi Israel because, of course, the formation of Nazi Israel in in a way allows Europe to kind of claim that, yeah, there you know we've washed ourselves clean of the sin of anti-Semitism. Yes, you know, 2,000 years of persecuting Jewish people because they keep on reminding them that in actual fact Jesus was Jewish and only worshipped Allah as Musa salam did and that calling Jesus God is in actual fact idolatry. That's why they hated the Jews. That's why they hate the Jews. Because the Jews keep on telling them, just like the Muslims, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. They don't like that. They don't like that at all. Anyway, 2,000 years later, you know, drenched in blood, drenched in Jewish blood, up to their elbows in Jewish blood, the entire Europe, just one big bloody expanse of Jewish massacre. That's Europe for you. That's Europe today as well. Don't be fooled by their claims that they've changed. They haven't. 
haven't changed at all. Look at uh, look how they respond to the Muslims. You can see exactly the same thing is happening inside their heads as was happening inside Nazi heads in the 1930s every time they looked at a Jew. Yes, you're wrong. You're going to go to hell. You're idolaters. You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. Your claims to, to be worshipping God and to be good people are complete rubbish. You're hypocrites and liars and murderers because you don't have any connection to your creator. Now, Europeans don't like being told that because Europeans like to think that they are the best people in the world. They are the most advanced, you know. They've civilized the world, colonized the world and brought them civilization. Look at the wonderful white man's inventions everywhere. Hmm? Yeah, primarily among white man's inventions are machines that cause death. I once had an argument with my brother. He was saying that white people are the best people in the world. Look how these black people do this and do that and do this and do that. And I said, well, have you ever considered that out of all the races in the world, white people have probably killed far more people than any other race? You know? Look at the fantastic weapons we have. If there's one thing that sets apart white people from any other race, it is the ability to kill other human beings. Yes, no one, no one can outmatch white people when it comes to murder. And if you consider the way they um, uh, fiddle things with uh, riba and the interest rates and currencies and all of that, no one steals better and more than white people do. Best thieves and murderers the world has ever seen. Hmm. That's why it's civilization for you. Uh, many myths that uh, grew up out of the Holocaust primarily that um, you can pay for 2,000 years of anti-Semitism, the sin of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism, by stealing someone else's land from other Semites. Yeah, and Muslims are also Semites, by the way. Yeah, we, 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 Arabic is uh, come from uh, Shem, one of the sons of Noah, the Semitic language, Shem. Yeah, the Semitic language and Islam is because of Arabic. And the Quran is seen as being a Semitic uh, religion. So we're all Semites as well, you know. So when they come and uh, they accuse Muslims of being anti-Semitic, you just roll your eyes like that and say, Pfft. Um, Yeah. So anyway, the Labour Party under um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was stridently um, anti-Israel. And it would appear that a few staff members within the Labour Party didn't like that at all. And uh, then, um, uh, as Labour was going into the last election, that got all that that blonde, um, that uh, the albino, the albino Prime Minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, the albino Prime Minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, was brought in. Uh, mainly because uh, the Labour was complete disarray of the anti-Semitism claims. Jeremy Corbyn uh, lost his seat to Keir Starmer, who today uh, turned around and apologized unreservedly, uh, catching, apparently, it would seem, a great section of the Labour Party completely by surprise. They'd been told by well, their lawyers they had a very good case, a very strong case in court. Suddenly, the leader of the Labour Party turns around and decides, all right, we're going to apologize, we're going to pull out of this unreservedly. I suppose in many ways, you see, it's a, it's a smart political move and in many ways shows, uh, shows the shortcomings of the Western political system. The party, the corporation, the veil of the West that hides corruption. Yeah, has, has been um, has been once again used to gerrymander 
um, legitimacy, I suppose. Uh, I, I goes to show you, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a bit like uh, how the ANC was taken over um, uh, after 1994. Easiest thing to steal in the world is a revolution. Particularly, because you see, revolutions get headed up by parties. And parties are wonderful little things, you know. Because the party doesn't really exist. It's like, uh, I love saying this to Westerners, you know. They say, oh, God doesn't exist, you believe in the tooth fairy. So, well, in actual fact, you know what? Uh, the corporation doesn't, the Anglo-American doesn't exist. The Labour Party doesn't exist. Um, the your pension fund doesn't exist. Your medical aid doesn't exist. The corporation where you go and you work every day doesn't exist. These are all figments of your imagination. You are, they are, seen in law as legal fictions. You know it's a fiction, but you believe in it. And you expect the whole world to follow the dictates of the non-existent corporation. The wonderful thing about a corporation is, you know, it's headed up by a board and like a chief executive or, you know, a general secretary or something like that. And, uh, you know, they hold regular board meetings. Now, when the board meeting is held, there's like, you know, usually about 12 or 15, 10, sometimes seven people around the table, you know, depending on how, how big the quorum is that they decide there has to be a certain amount of people sitting uh, in order for it to be a valid board meeting. But anyway, you know, you um, you can go get proxy uh, votes from all your supporters and uh, you arrive at like, you know, a very ordinary, dull little meeting that's been set up and then you bring a special motion to get rid of the chief executive. Um, uh, you accuse him of, um, of stealing funds and uh, you get two other people at the meeting with all of their um, – proxy votes to say yes and we've been told this by our supporters as well suddenly um, the whole uh, organization is turned on its head because at one little meeting somewhere no one uh, no one there to give witness to psh, suddenly we've got a whole new leadership and the whole new leadership is going a completely different direction from the one you were busy with before that meeting so you see the party is there because the party can be hijacked without anyone knowing, in the darkness of night. It's like as, as though you're trying to scream in outer space. There's no one to hear. There's no alarm bells ringing. You know, people still think it's the same thing. It's like when I worked for the Star newspaper in the 1990s. I didn't know, you know, every time I went and uh, risked my life uh, in the township to try and bring the news in, and the IFP and the CCB hit squads and all of those kinds of things were going on. You know, you, did, you didn't know to be wake up in the morning uh, if you're going to be alive at the end of the day because you don't know what kind of job you're going to be doing in journalism during the last days of apartheid. You know, and you're working at a newspaper, the Star newspaper. It's a national newspaper. And you meet the people at the newspaper, and they're all dedicated. They're all dedicated journalists. You know, you're willing to risk your life in order to go and get the story. And then the next day, you're willing to do it again. And uh, the next month, you're willing to do it again. And then the next year, you're willing to do it again. And that continues and continues and continues. You know, that kind of process very quickly shorts out the real guys from the pretenders. So you end up at the end of apartheid. You've got like a news team in your newsroom that is unparalleled anywhere in the world. We've been through, we've been like, you know, battle-tested. We've been through the fires of, of war. You know, we've seen it all, the smell of blood, injuries. We've lost comrades. Yeah, all of those kinds of things, you know. 
This is our news room where we are in it together. Yeah, yeah, we we will provide the news. We are unafraid and we will do it without fear or favor. And then they go and sell the newspaper to some um, foreign businessman, Tony O'Reilly. And he comes over and he, he decides, right, okay, we need to do independent, we need to do entertainment journalism. It's a way to make money. People like to be entertained. We want to entertain people. Suddenly, all of the serious journalists are kind of like um, sitting watching, and suddenly the, the, the news editor gets replaced, and a flunky gets put in his position. A person who's writing Hollywood press releases, you know, for the Tonight section is seen as being an entertaining person. You know, most dullest, boring person you could meet, and the niece of Janusz Valus, who assassinated Chris Hani, and she's made the managing editor of the newspaper. Well, then all of the principal staff immediately disappear and leave. They're not going to work under those kinds of people. And bing! Do the readers know about that? No, they don't. Your whole your whole newspaper has been hijacked. That newspaper that you've come to trust because it was, you know, you could see you were reading from the stories that its staff were seriously on a daily basis risking their lives in order to bring the news to you. Kind of like is as a hard-won credibility that. You're not going to get it very easily. You can't go and buy it at a shop. Hmm? Four years of, of, of really hard work. Five years of risking your life. And suddenly the newspaper is now a, a mouthpiece for privatization. And um, uh, selling off of, uh, of, of the government silverware to the private sector. You know, all the British and foreign companies were really expecting the ANC to set up all the silverware in order to like sort of uh, pay for service delivery in South Africa in the early days of apartheid. Thankfully, largely due to the inefficiency of the ANC, that didn't happen. Um, and, of course, there's also a major ideological block to it, too. But I'm sure that there are quite a few ANC leaders, many of them in the NEC today, who wouldn't hesitate for one second if they're given enough money uh, to sell out. Uh, but anyway, because you see the ANC is just another corporation like the Labour Party today. So under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party established itself as being a, a, a standing up against Nazism in Israel. Now suddenly it's all been turned around. You know, uh, the latest leaders decided, well, you know, the Jeremy Corbyn has got a strong following within the Labour Party. I need to undercut them completely. We will admit to anti-Semitism under Jeremy Corbyn, and then anyone who supports Jeremy Corbyn will be seen as an anti-Semite. It's a very nice move. And uh, and then we can, uh, we can uh, not going to be long before Labour Party is going to be going off. Keir, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, is going to be going across to, um, to Tel Aviv to go and visit the Nazis. Who wants a bet? Hmm? Within the next month, Keir Starmer is going to be in Nazi Israel pressing his head against the Wailing Wall. Hmm? Who wants a bet? Okay, we don't gamble on, on Marcus Sahaba. We don't gamble on Marcus Sahaba. What's the day today? It is the 22nd of July. Who bets that with, by, before the 22nd of August, Keir Starmer will be uh, a special guest of the Nazi government in Tel Aviv? Hmm? I bet you. Bet you it's going to happen. Yes, goes to show you, you see, just like the Star newspaper was was stolen. And all of that work that I did, all of those years as a dedicated journalist, I didn't know. I was actually doing it in order to promote privatization. Because that's what Tony O'Reilly did. 
He took my reputation and the reputation of a whole lot of other people, held it up in the air and said, let's privatize. Come, come, we must sell the state, uh, the state furniture. We must sell all the silverware. And yeah, Alameen Templeton, well, he was known as Brendan Templeton in those days. Yes, he says so. And he risked his life to bring you the news so you know you can trust the star. No, it's just a... It's just a mask. The star is a mask. Just like a Labour Party is a mask. Just like Anglo-American is a mask. They're all corporations. Just like the ANC and the South African Communist Party. They're all masks. They have to wear the mask because they are dedicated to the nuclear family economy. The economy that forces you to break your family ties and to go and find uh, shelter beneath the um, shelter beneath the imagined shadow of the corporation. Go and find work at the corporation. The corporation will look after you when you get sick. You go turn to the medical aid. The corporation will look after you in your old age. Your pension fund is there for you, and you can trust the corporation more than you can trust your own family. And of course, you can't really trust your own family. And why is that? <clears throat> well, because. Your family, just like yourself, has been taught by society to break its family ties. So, you know, when you finish school, uh, once the cool school, which is also a corporation, uh, well, well, once the school has uh, trained you to be fit for the factory floor, uh, you leave the home. You're going to be independent. You don't want to be seen as being living with your parents. He's still living with his parents. It's seen as an embarrassment rather than a virtue. And when you're out there on your own, male or female, what happens if you fall pregnant and you're female, you fall pregnant? Well, it'd be worrying if you're a male and you fell pregnant. But, uh, okay, you're female, you fall pregnant, what do you do? Um, the man who, was, who said he loved you has disappeared completely. There's no one to enforce your rights. You don't have uh, family members to come around and go, to, go chase down the guy and go try and find him. Uh, you need to go and continue earning a salary in order to pay your rent. What are you going to do? Yep, next thing you know, you're there at the abortion clinic, uh, vociferously arguing for your right to, to abortion. It's your material interest. There's no protection for you. You don't have any choice, you know. Okay, you can go get pregnant, and uh, how you go? How are you going to raise a child on your own? You know what a, what a struggle that is. Hmm? What about your career prospects in the corporation? Hmm? If you can go to another corporation, I can rip the baby out of your womb. Yes, well, it's logical. It all makes sense. You see, and your family is weak and it can't help you. Why is that? Because every family member, instead of directing money towards, like, say, a family trust or a family fund that looks after the family, uh, every individual is taking that money and sending it off to the medical aid rather than to the family fund, sending the money to the pension fund rather than to the family fund. He's saving his money at the bank instead of with the, with the family. Instead of spending it among the family, don't keep it under the mattress. You're, 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 you've got extra funds. Give it away. Give it to your family. And it's amazing how you continue doing that and everyone in your family does that. You'll be amazed how quickly your family will become much stronger than the state. You won't need the state. You see, it's only when you break those ties that suddenly you need the state. This is the state that Nebuchadnezzar Kirin, Salallahu Alaihi warned us about in these end times. This is where zakat has become taxation. Hmm? Exactly what we are seeing today. Break your family ties, lose your identity. Or as Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, 
they forget their souls. Hmm? Family helps you remember who you are. As Allah Ta'ala created you in the womb of your mother. That is who you are. Well, anyway, okay, a lot of really hard, hard business news coming up after the news, which is coming up in just a few moments. We've got a few commercial messages after the news, inshallah, the Asar Azan. Hmm, 4.12 it is, yes, this is the Drive Time Show. Uh, business report with me, your host, Anameen Templeton. Uh, we've got Lucky Decimela in the studio, keeping us all modulated and smooth uh, across the airwaves. Congratulations on your taste in broadcasting. Yeah, we'll give, we'll give you some of the, the best views and insights into Islamic thought that you're going to find anywhere in the world. Mm, yeah, what with Mufti AK and a whole bunch of uh, other like top ulama in South Africa. Uh, we may be a tiny little news organization or journalism outfit. I don't know if you can call us that, or media organization. But we punch above our weight. We do our best. <clears throat> Let's uh, find out how the uh, how the British media are covering uh, this whole um, Labour Party apology for anti-Semitism. Uh, in many ways, it's a, it's a, it's a crafty move on the, the latest leader of uh, this this veil in the um, in the um, political sphere in Britain. Keir Starmer has, um, uh, took over the Labour Party uh, because of the disarray in the Corbyn ranks, Jeremy Corbyn's followers. However, Jeremy Corbyn continues to command quite a strong following within the party. So, in order to neutralise that, one of the best ways to do it is to apologise for the anti-Semitism under, under Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is immediately painted as an anti-Semite by his own party, and um, the whole world turns around and has a look and says, what's going on over there? And so Jeremy Corbyn is thereby neutralized, and Keir Starmer can go and re- reshape the Labour Party in his own image. As I say, I bet you, uh, within a month, Keir Starmer is going to be in Nazi Israel as a very good friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. Anyway, uh, according to the Daily Express today, Labour's Keir Starmer faces mutiny from Jeremy Corbyn's allies after his party apologised to whistleblowers who contributed to a TV expose on its handling of anti-Semitism. Of course, this whole anti-Semitism thing is a shibboleth that is meant to uh, neutralise uh, Labour's criticism of Nazi Israel. In fact, it's, a, it's an attempt to neutralise opposition to Nazism. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Uh, an army of supporters of Keir Starmer's predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, according to the Express, have hit out after Labour agreed to pay substantial damages and issued an unreserved apology over defamatory and false allegations made following a BBC panorama investigation. It comes as Mr. Starmer continues efforts to distance the party from its predecessor, Mr. Corbyn, declaring at the House of Commons this afternoon during Prime Minister's questions, the Labour Party is under new management. In response to the settlement, the boss of Unite, Labour's biggest donor, said it was a misuse of the party's funds. Uh, Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey, an ally of Corbyn, said today's settlement is a misuse of Labour Party funds. To settle a case, it was advised we would win in court. He said a leaked report on anti-Semitism, which detailed the factional splits in that party's headquarters, told a very different story about what happened. 
while Corbyn's former aide Steve Howell tweeted, Keir Starmer just threw the Labour Party into an even deeper mess. By issuing an apology to former staff who appeared in the Panorama programme, he is prejudging the Ford inquiry into the serious issues revealed in the leaked report, in which at least one of them is implicated. Their angry comments come amid reports of several of Mr Corbyn's former officials, Kerry Murphy, Seamus Mill and Jenny Formby sought legal advice ahead of the decision to ensure they saw the apology before it was issued. Mr Corbyn himself hit out, saying settling the case was a political decision, not a legal one. He said it was a disappointing decision which risked giving credibility to misleading and inaccurate allegations about action to tackle anti-Semitism in Labour. Corbyn said our legal advice was that the party had a strong defence and the evidence in the leaked Labour report that is now the subject of an NEC inquiry led by Martin Ford QC strengthened concerns about the role played by some of those who took part in the program. The decision to settle these claims in this way is disappointing and risks giving credibility to misleading and inaccurate allegations about action taken to tackle anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in recent years. To give our members the answers and justice they deserve, the inquiry led by Martin Ford must now fully address the evidence the internal report uncovered on racism, sexism, sexism, factionalism and obstruction of Labour's 2017 general election campaign. Seven former employees who worked in the party's governance and legal unit who were responsible for the investigation of allegations of misconduct by party members sued Labour after it issued a press release describing them as having a personal and political axis to grind. The legal action followed the broadcast in July 2019 of a BBC panorama programme entitled Is Labour Anti-Semitic? Catherine Buckingham, Michael Creighton, Samuel Matthews, Daniel Hogan, Louise Withers-Green, Martha Robinson and Benjamin Westerman all had concerns that there was a lack of commitment by by Labour to properly investigate anti-Semitism within the party, the High Court heard Wednesday. At a brief hearing in London, their barrister William Bennett QC said the whistleblowers were highly critical of the Labour Party's approach to tackling anti-Semitism within its ranks. He told Mr Justice Nickling, Before the broadcast of the Panorama program, the Labour Party issued a press release that contained defamatory and false allegations about the whistleblowers. Labour's handling of anti-Semitism allegations under Mr Corbyn's leadership is the subject of an inquiry uh, by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and Sir Keir has already received the draft report from the watchdog. The party said that under Sir Keir and the Deputy Leader Angela Rayner, Labour is committed to tackling anti-Semitism. In a statement, the party said anti-Semitism has been a stain on the Labour Party in recent years. It has caused unacceptable and unimaginable levels of grief and distress for many in the Jewish community as well as members of staff. If we are to restore the trust of the Jewish community, we must demonstrate a change of leadership. That means being open to transparent and respecting the rights of whistleblowers and the free press and freedom of expression, which includes the right to object to things written or published. Well, there you go. We'll leave it there then. What's happening in South Africa today? Well, the JSC's had a few strong days. The RAND has been on the front foot for a while. Uh, gold has been leaping through the roof, and gold experts are saying that it's conti- going to continue doing so. A lot of questions have been asked about the dollar today, particularly after Europe issued itself a 750 billion euro um, bailout. It's nice, as I said yesterday, to be a white man. It's a nice day to be a white man, yes. And, uh, well, now that's apparently undermining, uh, threatening the dollar's dominance uh, as a world's reserve currency. More about that a little bit later. 
We've been having a look at what's happening with the silver and gold prices. Maybe we'll take a peek at oil. Uh, Steinhoff and uh, Christoph Wieser, the the, um, the Checkers chairman, the uh, Checkers founder. Uh, Christoph Wieser has got a big claim against Steinhoff. Says they misled him and he's entitled his money back. A whole lot of other people are criticizing him and his claim. Anyway, we'll be getting into that if we have enough time in the show. The Rand weakened early today as investors took profits after a rally that took the currency to a one and a half month peak. The Rand was 0.5% weak at 16.49 per dollar early this morning, having reached 16.36 overnight for its best since June 10, in a broad rally spurred by a landmark European Union economic rescue package. The EU will pump at least 750 billion euros, or $865 billion, into a package aimed at helping the hardest-hit economies. Part of that stimulus is expected to spill into emerging market investments. But with COVID-19 infections continuing to climb locally and abroad and keenly watched United States initial job claims data due on Thursday after South Africa's central bank decides on lending rates, investors opted to pocket gains from the recent rally. The South African Reserve Bank concludes its three-day policy meeting Thursday with lending rates expected to be cut by another 25 basis points. But with inflation dipping below the bank's target range of 3 to 6% for the first time in two decades and fellow emerging market banks continuing to ease policy, there's growing probability of a deeper cut, analysts say, betting big bets at ba- keeping big bets at bay. Bond prices were also soft in early trade. The yield on benchmark 2030 government paper was up 2.5 basis points at 9.33. Now compare those government bonds to American government bonds <clears throat> where they got about 0% get 9.3% uh, on uh, South African bonds. All right. Well, anyway, um, uh, retail sales figures came out today as well. And, um, yeah, they made for very uh, depressing reading, as to be expected in the middle of a lockdown. Uh, they plunged to record um, retail sales, plunged by a record 50.4% in April and 12% in May, uh, with the latest evidence of the impact of the strict early phases of the country's coronavirus lockdown. Uh, um, the governments uh, may have eased uh, some of the lockdown regulations, but we continue to uh, remain in a state of stress. Stat South Africa said the April annual figures were the lowest since 2002, when the agency began compiling the data. On a monthly basis, sales were up 74.2% after a 50.7% contraction in April. Quarterly sales dropped 19.5%. Retail and trade accounts for around 15% of GDP, the third largest sector after finance and government services, but increasingly indebted consumers kept indoors by lockdown are unlikely to increase spending soon. The central bank has slashed lending rates by 275 basis points since January to stimulate spending, and is set to cut rates again Thursday, but economists argue it will not be enough to revive the consumer sector. Because if you're not earning any money, well, we can, we'll just leave the rest unsaid. Silver and gold are really on the front foot now. Their silver surged to the highest in almost seven years today, and gold continued its march towards a record on expectations. There'll be more stimulus to help the global economy recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Unfortunately, stimulus not coming out of South Africa. Why isn't our South African government doing a little bit of stimulus? You'd be damn foolish to do not to do so. If America and Britain and China can continue printing paper and then we continue uh, exchanging that for our hard-earned rands, 
then we should start issuing them a bit of paper too. Because it really doesn't make sense to work for your money and then have uh, lazy Americans and Europeans coming along and buying up your economy. Because they hand out paper and we say, yes, thank you very much. Silver surged highest in almost seven years today, and gold continued its march towards a record on expectations there'll be more stimulus. Investors have flocked to the metals on surging demand for havens amid a resurgence in virus cases, slowing growth, negative real interest rates in the U.S., in the US flaring political tensions, and a weaker dollar. The vast amounts of stimulus unleashed by governments and central banks have also aided prices, and after the success of a European rescue package this week, focus turns to negotiations on legislation to prop up the American economy. Silver jumped more than 8%, the biggest gain since March, and has been getting an added boost from supply concerns and optimism about a rebound in industrial demand. Holdings in exchange-traded funds backed by silver at a record, while gold ETF holdings rose the most since mid-June and are at the highest ever. It's a typical low-liquidity summer market where prices tend to be easier to push, especially when momentum has been established as per the trifecta of support, said Ole Hansen, head of commodity strategy at Saxo Bank. The closer gold gets to its record high, the stronger the magnetic field will become, and that could see it challenge that level before long. Silver should also continue to run as long as it has support from higher gold as well as a weaker dollar and bets for more industrial demand. Spot silver jumped as much as 8.1% to $23 an ounce, the highest since 2013, and it was at $22.91 uh, today. Spot gold climbed as much as 1.3% to 1865 an ounce, nearing, nearing 2011's record high of 1921 Investors also weighed mounting Sino-American tensions after China vowed retaliation after the U.S. forced the closure of its Houston consulate. The State Department said it took the measure to protect American intelligent intellectual property and Americans' private information. What exactly that means, I don't know, but there you go. I mean, you know, the the British are going on about how the Chinese, I mean, no, 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 it's the Russians. Russians have got... um, have got the UK in its sights, and uh, you know they, 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 there's Russian spies with Novichok poisoned on people's doorknobs all, all over the country. Yeah, poor Britain, shame. And you know you go and murder a million, uh, five million Iraqis, and George Blair is still uh, not in jail. But Britain, but Britain is being persecuted. Hmm? It's amazing. The more Muslim Semites they kill, the more Muslim anti-Semitism they express, the more they claim to be a victim. I feel so sorry for Blighty. And uh, across the pond in America, it's the Chinese, you know. And the same thing goes. The more Muslim Semites they murder, the more the Americans fear that they are a victim. White logic, I'll tell you what, it's stronger than science. Um, the fear of missing out is driving a flood of speculative money into gold, piling up on uh, June to January's heavy physical demand, said Adrian Ash, Director of Research at Bullion Vault. Um, still, some investors have turned to selling. Given uh, the recent rally, Bullion Vault saw gold trading volumes double from the prior 30-day average in the last 24 hours, with sales rising faster than purchases. Movements in silver were even more dramatic, he said. 
Both metals' relative strength indices are above 72, suggesting that they may soon become overbought. Silver has now reached an extreme value. We do not expect silver prices to continue at the same rate. However, we also believe that a significant correction in the current environment is unlikely. Well, that's gold and silver. What about oil? Well, oil in New York eased from a four-month high on signs of a surprise gain in U.S. crude stockpiles, raising fresh concerns about supply as many regions struggle to get the pandemic under control. The American Petroleum Institute reported crude inventories rose by 7.5 million barrels last week, according to people uh, familiar with their figures, which which would be the biggest increase since May. Uh, Meanwhile, Donald Trump, the president, has warned that the coronavirus outbreak in America will probably get worse before it gets better. He started to say the things other people were saying four months ago. Oil surged Tuesday after European leaders agreed on a giant stimulus package to pull the economies out of the worst recession in memory, while signs that the first virus vaccine may be approved this year added to positive sentiment. The price rally has stalled recently. Oh, they don't know. They don't say that the first virus vaccine is coming out of China. Donald Trump says he's willing to work with anyone. It's amazing. Hmm? <laughs> They're closing down the Chinese uh, consulate in Houston and at the same time saying, yes, no, if the Chinese invent that vaccine, no, we'd like to get our hands on it because we'd like to copy it and then send it out and steal their intellectual property. Um, it's a bit like the uh, where we were speaking about it yesterday. Was it the interferon beta? Now, a British company has found a way to, to administer it via um, a nebulizer, a breathalyzer. You breathe it in like an aerosol. Um it was invented, uh, um, interfere on beat. It was invented by the Cubans and developed uh, on a commercial basis by the Cubans and the Chinese. And, um, you know, when the Cubans started going all around the world to go and save people's lives in COVID-19, the Americans were calling them medical mercenaries and going on, and the country shouldn't take these people in, blah, 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 blah. And now that the British have gone and invented a, a, a interfere on beta nebulizer, now, now suddenly it's fine. Hypocrisy, yes, indeed. White logic is stronger than science. A oil surge Tuesday after European leaders agreed on the giant stimulus package. The price rally had stalled recently and crude was stuck in a tight range near $40 a barrel as investors weighed surging coronavirus cases and the return of supply by OPEC plus after historic cuts. The peak is apparently not here for coronavirus cases in the U.S., framing concerns of a slowdown in the global economy. There also is no easing on the supply side, with expected increases in U.S. inventory and OPEC plus shipments, said Will Sun-Chil, Senior Commodities Analyst at VI Investment Corporation. Um, uh, West uh, Texas Intermediate, the WTI, uh, fell 0.5% to $41 a barrel. Uh, Brent uh, fell to uh, lost 0.4% to $44 a barrel. Still very healthy prices, I must say. Uh, crude futures rose to 302 yuan. So I can't really say that. I don't know what the yuan price of uh, barrel oil price is. U.S. crude stockpiles as a key storage hub of Cushing increased by 716,000 barrels last week, while gasoline inventories fell for a third week. Analysts expect the Energy Information Administration to report a 2.2 million barrel decline in the nationwide crude stockpiles. OPEC Plus is due to start tapering uh, output cuts next month. So you're going to start increasing output, in other words. 
while Russia shipments of its uh, flagship Urals grade looks like they might dip, according to loading programs uh, seen by Bloomberg. Um, Saudi Arabia is set to burn potentially record amounts of crude to run its power plants and keep its citizens comfortably air-conditioned. I saw last night that the uh, temperature in Baghdad was 48 degrees. Sure. Yeah, so you can expect uh, in Arabia there's a lot of air conditioning units that are going at full blast right now. Got to go for a quick commercial break. Inshallah, we'll be back in just a while. You are listening to Merkaz Sahaba, the voice of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. 4.33 p.m. it is. Yeah, well, that means that people are getting into the cars and they're starting to head off home. The long drive uh, from the office to the home. May Allah ta'ala bring everyone home uh, safely, inshallah. Well, we said early on in the show that uh, Europe's decision to give itself a nice little smack in the back with 750 billion euros worth of bailouts. It's nice being a white man, you know. You can just print money and expect darker-skinned countries to exchange uh, their currencies for your worthless paper. And it works. It works. It works. It's a huge, big con job. It's a, it's a, it's one of the one of the biggest um, acts of kufr in the world right now. Dollars and euros. Well, the entire monetary system in the world is 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 riba based anyway. So. But it's, it's really, I mean, if it, if it stank before, it's doing something more than stinking right now. But anyway, now there's an, now questions are being asked about the dollar's status as a global, as a world's reserve currency. Being a reserve currency means that uh, reserve banks all around the world uh, keep their store their reserves in dollars instead of their own uh, home currency. So, like yeah, in South Africa, I think we've got something like. Uh, is it, I think it was, we've got around about $55 billion worth of reserves, our reserve bank. Enough to cover, we are told, around about three months worth of trade losses. Uh, but then, you know, it's, it's stored in dollars. That means that we have to have $55 billion on call. That means that there's demand for dollars. So simply have it in reserve means that uh, there's major demand and support for the dollar on any given on any, any given day. Thanks to the Saudis agreeing uh, during uh, the last years of the Vietnam War, when America discovered that it was effectively bankrupt, that the war bankrupted it, America felt, well, then we've got to find some other way of uh, keeping our dollar as the major trading currency. They went across to the Saudis, the Saudi family. Uh, appointed uh, by the British Queen as the custodian of the two Haramein, not by a law. Uh, yeah, the Saudi family had sold out to the British uh, after World War One. Stabbed uh, Sayyid Hussein in the back when he refused to allow the British into uh, into the kingdom. While the Saudis suddenly appeared out of nowhere and said, "Well, you can come in." And uh, ever since uh, Arabia has been under British rule, I suppose nowadays it's uh, they say that after the Suez Canal crisis, uh, the British Foreign Office files, the files that were used to administer the British Empire for all those years, the Foreign Office files were taken lock, stock, and still smoking barrel all the way across to um, Washington. And that's where Washington really, like, um, took on uh, the mantle of empire. Although other people argue that America took on the mantle of empire during the Spanish-American War in 1900, when they took over Manila. 
yeah, and uh, uh, took over Spain's uh, foreign colonies uh, in order to protect the Cubans, who now they've got under, under embargo because the Cubans don't want America's protection. Yes, more American logic and morality uh, and hypocrisy. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, um, the, the, the white people continue uh, printing paper and uh, the darker-skinned nations continue swapping it uh, with real money. The dollar is facing, uh, according to Bloomberg, the dollar is facing renewed questions about its status as the globe's primary reserve currency. Um, the greenback accounts for more than 60% of global reserves. Uh, by the way, yes, uh, the trading as uh, a trading currency, world's trading currency as well. Uh, that's because the Saudis uh, during uh, the Vietnam War agreed to sell all of their oil in dollars, meaning that anyone who wants to buy oil has to go and exchange their currency for dollars. That means everyone has to buy dollars, and so the dollar becomes much stronger. Of course, because um, oil is by far the biggest uh, volume uh, traded commodity in the world on any stock exchange because it's needed in all economies. It's a big move on any, on any commodity market. So that meant that uh, when the Saudis start selling the oil in dollars, uh, all of the other oil producers were soon also selling the oil in dollars. And when all of the other commodity markets saw how easy it made trading for the traders, not necessarily prices for consumers, but when they saw how much uh, profits the traders were making by trading only in dollars and able to facilitate trade and things get moving much faster, everyone started doing it. So now if you want to go buy commodities anywhere in the world, you buy them in dollars. That means that anyone who wants to buy commodities has to exchange their currencies for dollars. And so there are two major supports uh, for the American dollar. And that's in many ways why the Americans are continuing to print dollars without any opposition. Because if you say the dollar is worthless, then that immediately means that your nation's reserves are also worthless. So no one says that they're worthless. Well, other than me. And a few others, I suppose. There are quite a few. Uh, but many people have been predicting the dollar's demise, and it has uh, defied gravity, logic, reason, and morality throughout all of it. But now it is facing renewed questions. It uh, accounts for 60% of all global reserves and is the most widely used currency for international transactions. But it risks ceding ground to the euro after EU leaders agreed on a 750 billion euro stimulus package that enhances the appeal of the shared currency and euro-denominated as assets. Uh, Wall Street strategists are already becoming more enthusiastic about the shared currency, betting that it will strengthen as a global economy rebounds from the pandemic and investor appetite for risky assets picks up. The euro's strong correlation with equities suggests it may climb as the recovery fund makes the region's stocks more attractive. And under the accord, EU nations will jointly issue debt that could offer an alternative to U.S. Treasuries as a haven. The recovery fund will facilitate diversification out of the U.S. dollar by offering liquid, high-rating, euro-denominated debt, said Credit Agricola's Valentin Marinov, adding that the dollar's share of reserves could revisit its lows from the early 1990s. The euro on Tuesday touched uh, 1.15 to the dollar, the highest level since January 2019. It's almost up 3% this year. The shared currencies still have some major hurdles to overcome before it dents the dollar's dominance. About 85% of all foreign exchange transactions occur against the greenback, while half of international trade is invoiced in it, 
according to the Bank for International Settlements. The Bank for International Settlements is basically the bank for the reserve banks, and it's made up of all the all the different reserve banks in the world. Um, and the euro still only makes up about 20% of global foreign exchange reserves. The figures, the figure, figure peaked at about 28% in 2009. Still, some uh, long-time uh, dollar bear, uh, still a long-time dollar bear, Ulf Lindahl, uh, chief executive officer of AG Bissett Associates and a more than 40-year veteran of the currency markets, sure, so he must be used to lies, projects the euro will rise by more than 30% against the dollar in the next 16 months. After breaching 1.14 uh, uh, against the dollar earlier this month, it's on a clear lift-off path against the dollar, and it's outlooking even stronger now he said. And should the recovery fund quell concerns that the euro region could even break up at some point, more economic activity will be executed in euros, according to Peter Chatwell, head of multi-asset strategy at Mizuo. Over the medium term, the recovery fund does indeed pose a strong challenge to treasuries and the dollar, he said. Well, we've heard many, many stories about Steinhoff. Hmm, 2017, it was over 200 rands. Within a month, it was uh, below 2 rand. Uh, a 100% falling off in value. Because it turned out that its directors had been making Jacob Zuma look like an amateur. Well, in actual fact, Jacob Zuma is an amateur. But he's a very greedy amateur. So, you know, he kind of, he cannot resist. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, I mean, they even made Jacob Zuma's greed look like um, small fry, really. You know, you need to you need to point these things out, you know, when, when white people in South Africa are gone about black people destroying the economy. Yes, yes. But as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, you don't get a better thief or a murderer in the world than a white man. Well, not on an individual basis. Yes, there are exceptions, but generally, looking at white your nation history, that's the, that's really the story that stands out. No one has killed more and stolen more than us. So anyway, let's get back to Steinhoff. As if the Steinhoff debacle was not enough of a tangled web, it now appears that there are no fewer than four core challenges. Uh, to uh, against a substantial portion of former chairman Christoph Wieser's 59 billion rand claim against the company, the group. Last month, the release of the annual financial statements uh, alluded to yet more, uh, more of the complexity that lies at the heart of Steinhoff. A note tucked away on page 224 of the AFS flags, annual financial statements, flagged the possibility that Visa, who was the largest shareholder in Steinhoff with 1.06 billion shares at the time of the December 2017 collapse, does not have an undisputed right to the 59 billion rand claim he lodged against Steinhoff with such fanfare last year in April. The brief note makes reference to the previously little-known entity called Conservatorium, which turns out to be involved in no less than four transactional court actions targeting Visa's claim. The actions have been launched in Cape Town and in Amsterdam as a direct result of the 1.6 billion euro loan Visa used to acquire 314 million Steinhoff shares in 2016. Visa used a private Amsterdam-registered company called Uppington, in which he held 89% to make that share per purchase. 
and that's after getting personal um, reassurances uh, from uh, the board at Steinhoff. So, you know, there's, a, there's like, you know, billionaire um, anger in all of this. Uh, the brief note in Steinhoff 2019 uh, financial statements declared, described the long list of contingent liabilities and other litigation facing the once high-flying international retail group. It states that the visa-related claims were instituted by Tybalt, another visa-controlled unlisted entity, and Uppington, and launched in April 2018. The larger of the two claims made by the visa-related companies is for 34.7 billion rands, and it's for the restitution of the Pepcor shares that Visa gave to Steinhoff in exchange for Steinhoff shares. <laughs> yes, indeed, a very angry man indeed. The second claim for 1.6 billion euros relates to the September 2016 purchase of the 314 million Steinhoff shares by Uppington. When it initiated the action in 2018, Uppington said it had a right to this money because it had subscribed uh, for the shares on the basis of financial information that subsequently proved to be fabricated. Both of these claims are at the center of the transcontinental legal battle. The legal challenge by U.S. registered conservatorium highlights the risk of using debt to fund equity purchases, which was one of Visa's favored strategies and served him well for most of his career until Steinhoff. Ach, shame, man. You must feel sorry for the guy. He would go and borrow money in order to make money. I say he was a beggar. He's a beggar his whole life. Um, a few outsiders realized just how heavily geared this kind of investment was until the large international banks would provide that some of his funding disclosed weeks after the December 2017 announcement about irregular accounting that they had suffered hefty losses on the exposure to Visa. As we all now know, back in 2016, Visa, through Uppington, secured a 1.6 billion non-recourse margin loan to purchase the 340 million Steinhoff shares. The loan was secured, was provided by four late increase to eight financial institutions, so he took a massive bet. Namura, HSBC, oh shame, poor HSBC. That's the, that's the, um, that's the, uh, the, the money laundering fund for uh, mercenaries, drug dealers, and um, uh, regime changes. Also, Citibank and Goldman Sachs. Oh, shame. I hope they all lose their money. As security for the loan, Visa pledged through Uppington 750 million Steinhoff shares and all claims attached to those shares to the lenders. The security was protected for the lenders by specific restrictions regarding the transferability of the shares. Uh, the little over two times cover of the September 2016 purchase price of the shares reveals how attractive Steinhoff must have been to these global financial institutions. So attractive indeed that according to Visa's court papers, the loan was negotiated over just one week in September 2016. As a result of the share price crash in December 2017, the lenders suffered a loss of around 1 billion euros. Yay, come on, it's a pity we don't have an applause button here in the studio. However, in terms of the security Visa Uppington had provided, they still had claims on any proceeds paid out uh, to Uppington in relation to Uppington's claims against Steinhoff. These claims were purchased by a conservatorium in June 2019. That was nine months after Visa had dramatically liquidated Uppington with the approval of the Amsterdam court and without notifying the lenders. During this process, Uppington ceded the litigation claims it had against Steinhoff to Titan, yet another visa-controlled unlisted entity. 
That controversial move, which is at the heart of the Conservatorians' challenge, means Uppington's initial claim has been assumed by Titan. Conservatorium claims it's its own. Conservatorium has launched the four legal actions in a bid to secure its claim and to ensure any proceeds paid out on either of Visa's claims are first used to repay damages suffered by the lenders. I wonder who the uh, who the shareholders are of Conservatorium. I bet you they're all from the banks. Its actions include proceedings in Amsterdam aimed at setting aside the liquidation of Uppington. As Conservatorium sees it, the Visa family is attempting to misappropriate claims related to the pledged shares by instituting claims rightfully belonging to the lender's successor in title, the applicant, which is Conservatorium. Um, it says in the High Court, as a result of Steinert's unlawful actions, the lenders have suffered losses of at least 993 million euros. The lenders only recourse to recoup these losses in the claims pledged by the lenders appropriated by the Visa family. This application clarifies that the correct claimant against Steinhoff's is, in fact, the lenders, Conservatorium, who advanced the funds to enable the Visa family to acquire the shares, to whom the Visa family pledged all claims relating to the shares as collateral, and not the Visa family through its prior share ownership in Steinhoff. Visa's legal team questions Conservatorium's ownership of the lenders' claim, describing it as unsubstantiated. Note 22.3 to the Steinhoff Annual Financial Statement indicates the Steinhoff Board takes conservatorium claims seriously. It describes conservatorium as a legal successor entitled to Uppington's lenders and states conservatorium has been granted leave through Dutch legal proceedings to levy a prejudgment attachment on Uppington's claims against Steinhoff and Steinhoff International. As one analyst noted, this is a 59 billion legal action was motivated by a determination to get a seat at the table when it came to divvying up whatever value was left in Steinhoff. Now it looks as though his seat might be a good bit smaller than he'd hoped. So there you have it. Oh, Visa thought he was going to make a nice deal on Steinhoff. He got a whole lot of banks behind him to give him a loan. Uh, and then he promised that if the if the loan, if the whole deal went bad, that he was going to uh, then make it good, that uh, that then the lenders could take over the shares. And then he went and uh, liquidated uh, Uppington, which was the company that they used to buy the shares, and then tried to frustrate uh, their claim against the shares that he had agreed to when he made uh, the initial deal. And so now that's all in court. So that's the show here, rich guys. Mm, I don't know. You wouldn't want to invite these guys around to dinner. If you did, you want to make sure that you counted all the knives and plates and cups and saucers um, before they left. The Gauteng Provincial Government and the Bombella Concession Company are going to take multi-million rand hits because of low commuter patronage on the Gauteng caused by the COVID-19 lockdown. Oh wow! I wonder. I wonder if uh, the NEC is going to come under pressure as a result of this, because the Bombella cons- concession is owned 50% by Murray and Roberts, and the rest, according to my understanding, or it used to be, uh, the cabinet ministers uh, under Tabum Becky. Mm. Yeah, it, it was really interesting to watch uh, the bill for the Gau train. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, the idea was born in the Johannesburg Council, and the Johannesburg Council decided that they were going to build this Gau train with a link, uh, underground link to um, Pretoria and another underground link to, to um, Oatambo Airport. 
and then the province, and, and the cost was going to be 7 billion rands. The cost was going to be 7 billion rands. And then the Gauteng provincial government stepped in and said, no, 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 I'm sorry. But this, uh, this um, project uh, needs approval of uh, the province. Uh, because you know it's a it's a it's a it's an intra provincial thing that goes beyond the borders of Johannesburg. So Johannesburg cannot give approval to build uh, to tunnel underneath um, you know Germiston and uh, and uh, Bedford View. That's also part of Gauteng, and uh, you know you need provincial authority to to go to to between metros. So then uh, the project was sent over to the Gauteng government for approval. And amazingly, the bill jumped from 7 billion to 14 billion rands, we're talking. 14 billion. From 7 billion rands to 14 billion rands. Overnight, the price doubled. Then national government stepped in and said, no, 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 no. Uh, for this uh, for this Gauteng uh, project to be approved, it needs to go through national government. You see, national government needs to give its approval because look, look at the size of the bill, 14 billion rands. And, and uh, where are you buying all of your technology from? You're buying it overseas. You're buying it from France. That means that uh, there's a significant uh, currency risk to the RAND. So, therefore, this project needs to go through national government. So, then it went from the Gauteng government to national government. And guess what happened? Yes, exactly the same thing. The price, which was originally, originally 7 billion rands, that went and then went up to 14 billion rands when it went to Gauteng government. Now, when it went to national government, suddenly uh, exploded to 21 billion rands, 7 billion rands a time. I mean, that's like pure corruption, right there, in your face, under Tabo Mbeki. Yeah, um, Marion Roberts, of course, also one of the major uh, miscreants in um, the, the soccer stadium corruption uh, during the World Cup. Yeah. Marion Roberts, a very dirty company. Anyway, uh, now, now it appears uh, that they're going to take, uh, going to be taking a major hit because of the COVID-19 lockdown. So I'm just wondering if uh, former cabinet ministers are going to be calling up sitting cabinet ministers and and pointing out a thing or two to them. But anyway, Marion Roberts Group Investor and Media Executive Ed Jardim confirmed on Tuesday the group will take a financial hit because of low patronage. He said uh, the Mombeda Consortium carries the risk of actual revenue up to a certain level, and from this level up to the guaranteed level, level the revenue gap is covered by the Gauteng Management Agency, agency's patronage guarantee. Oh, that's really nice. So, you know, they gave themselves all kind of profitability guarantees before they got into the project. So they are going to be taking the government money out. So they're not really worried. The low volumes, oh, we're taking a little bit of a hit, but then we'll get, um, we'll get uh, bailouts from government. 
Jardim added that under the lockdown restrictions, ridership is down significantly from pre-lockdown levels to the extent that actual revenue is below the level from which the patronage guarantee applies. The other 50% of Marion Roberts, as I say, is owned by was owned by cabinet ministers. This shortfall between actual revenue and the level from which the patronage guarantee applies is carried by the consortium. Unfortunately, we're in a closed period and cannot provide any financial detail. Oh, that's very nice. However, Gauteng uh, Management uh, Chief Executive William Dax said the province paid 92 million rand more than budgeted for the patronage guarantee in the first quarter of this year, and Bombella lost approximately 171 million rand in revenue. All right, so 171 minus 92, uh, that's uh, 80, uh, 80, 80, 80 million rand loss they're taking. Still a significant loss. I'm quite sure those former cabinet ministers are on the phone right now. Dax said the financial cost of the patronage guarantee was 1.6 for last year, was uh, 1.6 billion rand. The cost of the guarantee for the financial year to March 31 is not yet available. Just trying to worry. Does that mean that we're paying out one point? The taxpayers are paying 1.6 billion rand a year to the to the um, train. Dax was guarded in its comments. Mm, yeah, a nice sweet little deal eh, if you're cabinet minister. On whether the, the Gauteng Management Authority had made any provision for the expected increase in the cost for the patronage guarantee in its uh, current financial year, and if not, where it will get the money. He said the GMA is engaging provincial treasury on a revised budget and is monitoring the revenue from the system. Dax said during a public transport in the time of COVID-19 interview on CNBC Africa this week that between 55,000 and 60,000 passengers a day normally travel on the Gau train, but this has declined to between 6,000 and 8,000 people a day depending on people's movements. That's a major shrinkage, I must say. We track our numbers daily and can draw a direct correlation with the COVID-19 and usage. When infection rates spike, people stop using the trains, he said. People are very responsive to what they perceive as the risk of going out. The weather is also a factor and a cold week impacts on us, he said. He said despite the Bombela Consortium taking the bulk of the countering revenue losses, it is performing really well and providing as much of the services as possible without laying off staff. He said Gautrain has been operating for 10 years, and from both the government and private sector point of view, they're trying to get through this and do another 20 years. It's uh, that kind of approach. The commitment is there from both parties to make sure that the Gautrain survives and comes through it. Um, Dark said the Gautrain would normally have transported about 4 million people in the period from March up to July 20, but had only transported 12% of that. He said a lot of people had observed the directives given by government and stayed at home, but the GMA also suspected that many people had moved back to using their private cars. Well, we're going to have to go for a little uh, commercial break. We've got the news coming up at 5 o'clock, and uh, then it's time to wrap up and make our farewells. You are listening to Merkaz Sahaba, the voice of Yes, well, we've we've reached that sort of sad part of the show. Yeah, well, the day is winding down. The sun is busy uh, continuing its scarab, its scarab-like trail across the sky, and uh, looking forward uh, to a crimson demise. Yes, the day is coming to an end. 
I have a million skies lie ahead, azure blue, and the moon is... We'll be able to see it, inshallah. So it'll be a nice thing. Come on, go out and have a look for the moon, if you missed it yesterday. I didn't see it yesterday, so I'll hopefully to see it as I'm on my way home today. It's always nice to see that moon and to smile at it, to make the uh, Masnoon Dua. Let Allah Ta'ala bring you luck this month and me luck this month. Mm. And always, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I, I love that about Islam. You know, that it's, it's the new moon which is our symbol. You know, because it's a symbol of renewal. It's a symbol of hope. Uh, and, it, uh, and it rises in the western sky, which is the, 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 the night sky. So even as the sky darkens, that little moon shines there and says, have hope, have hope. Allah Ta'ala's mercy exceeds his wrath. I love that little moon. That little fingernail in the sky. Even when it's turned upside down, it looks like it's frowning. I still love that little moon. I love that little moon. Alhamdulillah. The Hajj month is upon us. The ten most virtuous days of the year. The ten most virtuous days of the year. Better? Huh? Sure. Subhanallah. And Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam exhorted his followers to make effort in these days. Stay up a little bit later at night. Come on. Maybe stay up the whole night, one of the nights. You've got a weekend coming up. Why not dedicate a few nights? Try some Fasting. Uh, the, 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 the rewards are fantastic. And uh, we make dua that Allah Ta'ala protect all the hujjaj who, have, who are in Saudi Arabia already. Well, they had to be in Saudi Arabia. They had only people resident in Saudi Arabia have been allowed to go this year. Apparently, they've been given all kinds of protective face masks and things that they're going to have to wear. I wonder, I wonder what they're going to look like. Um, all these hujjaj walking by with face masks on. I wonder how they're going to manage the social distancing and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, all of, all of, the, uh, all of the lockdown technology. You know, I've, I've gone on about how China has been perfected against the Uyghurs. Well, you know, the Saudis and the British have been perfected in, uh, against the rest of the Muslims for quite a few years now. Crowd control. Yes, I'm, I'm sure even, the, even apartheid Israel has been allowed to share in the data. How to get crowd control going? Drug, uh, crowd, uh, mass movements of crowds. Yeah, yeah, the British, it's uh, full, fully British software and stuff that has been implemented there. Mm, uh, well, anyway, it's uh, coming up uh, to that time of the day when we have to make our farewells. Uh, I hope you found uh, the show informative. Um, sure, uh, we, we, we did get through most of the stuff that we wanted to get through today, alhamdulillah. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again, not at the same time, uh, big, uh, tomorrow, because if you join us at the same time tomorrow, it's going to be 5 past 12 and the show's already over. So don't, don't join us at the same time tomorrow. Join us uh, tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. and we'll try give a repeat performance. Jazakumullah for joining us. I make dua that Allah Ta'ala protect you and your loved ones from the evils of this coronavirus and he gives us an entire ummah increase in its good. And I make dua that whatever trade and activity you get up to today is profitable and above all halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.